Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the UVC podcast. I'm David, and I'm joined by Andreas. Today, we're welcoming Tej Panesar. Tej is a partner at Prism Ventures, a UK-headquartered institutional investor focused on the life sciences and healthcare sectors, a sector we don't cover that often, so I'm really excited for this one. Prism invests into best-of-breed fund managers in the US, Europe, and UK through fund of funds and co-investment programs. Tej was previously an investment director at British Patient Capital, BPC, a UK government-backed institution, very similar to the IES, and one of the largest investors in UK venture capital. While there, he committed £425 million to venture and growth fund managers in the UK and Europe, and led investments into fir firms like SV Health, Ambingworth, IQ Capital, and Don Capital. At Prism Ventures, Tej and the team have a wide lens across the life sciences and healthcare industries, but a strong focus on traditional biopharma and your areas like tech bio. If you're listening in and love our show, you know what to do. Drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values. Of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at eu.vc to watch this episode instead of just listening. Wow. eu.vc, where the extraordinary is just another Monday. This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So, Tesh, let's start this thing off as we always do. Tell us your story about how you got into venture. That's a big question. Uh, so it, it is. It is. It's a it's a it's a fairly long and uh, and varied journey. So, if I start right at the beginning, um, I, I grew up in Northern Ireland uh, and I was the son of a uh, a senior surgeon, uh, and that really kicked off. I, I think at, at the beginning a, a strong interest in technology in in some form or another, or at least created a curious mind. My journey into venture it really began. Uh, with my first sort of foray into technology and startups, I started my career at, at Citigroup within the investment bank, but then quickly joined an internal fintech startup, Orbion, and that was focused on uh, digital trade finance. And then I left with one of my former city bosses to start an online brokerage platform called Onbourse. Uh, that really gave me the entrepreneurial bug. Uh, after that, I, uh, I, I worked for a period with a boutique advisory firm focused on LBO transactions, but also venture deals, and then had a crazy idea, um, had been a real estate investor in London, uh, had lots of friends in Eastern Europe, and decided to go off to Poland to start a real estate company and fund. Ran that for uh, 10 years, so had a sort of very much a real estate focus for, for about uh, a decade, but was lucky enough to be part of the sort of burgeoning tech community that was going on in Krakow at the time. And that's still since grown from strength to strength. And so I was a part of that as an investor and an advisor appearing at events. And it was really through that community that I then, um, as I was coming to the end of my time at Poland, I, I met the US crowdfunding platform 
at an event in Krakow, uh, the firm Indiegogo. And indirectly, that led to me joining um, the equity crowdfunding platform in the UK, Crowdcube, when I returned in 2014. I had some options. I could have gone back into the city, um, but uh, I, 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 just from my background, I wanted to do something again, more entrepreneurial. And uh, Crowdcube, you know, was a great exposure to high growth environment, to, to VC as well. They're backed by, by Balderton and Moulton. And while I was there, um, uh, Crowdcube got, to, got me to look at setting up their own venture fund. And through that, met the British Business Bank, uh, some of the team there uh, as a potential LP. And that was really my first exposure to the world of the, the wacky world of institutional LP investing. And before I knew it, a few years later, I was working at uh, the British Business Bank, later BPC, where I spent uh, five to six years as a, as a venture-focused LP, initially focused on tech, uh, but then quickly developed a very strong interest in the life sciences sector, led the institution's deployment in that field, and even uh, got the opportunity to build out a dedicated program, uh, which was the life sciences investment program, the 200 million program focused on later stage UK life sciences, which was a collaboration with the UAE investor, uh, Mubadala. So BPC were an incredible incubator for me, taught me my trade and that interest, um, they, they incubated and that turned into a passion and they supported uh, actually the completion of uh, a biomedicine degree while I was there. And uh, uh, by coincidence, I had my, my graduation ceremony last week. Congrats. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that, that was a lot of hard work. And I'm glad it's over. But last year, then a, a, a German family office reached out to me and said, listen, we, we, we really like what you're doing, what you've done at BPC. We, we're thinking about creating a, an institutional life science focused program focused on a, on a, on a, on a global basis, uh, the opportunity set. And that brings me to my, my, my current role as a partner at, at Prism Ventures. So long and circuitous, but I, I hope that that gives you some sense of where I come from. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We spoke, I guess, six months ago or so, maybe even more. And you're a very, very smart guy. Uh, and I, for that reason, I'd love to ask you to enlighten us on how you look at the different LPs, and 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 th that exist in 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 the world, right? The different classes of LPs, because you've been in 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 many of the different shoes and and seen that. So I'd love to kind of ask you to expand on that for our audience and 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 what you'd say that VC VCs should be thinking about when they're when they're talking to LPs and thinking about their LPs. We're going to talk a lot more about. Prism and what you look for in managers, and that's why I want to start out by just getting you to sh give us give us an LP's view on the LP world. So listen, I mean, as with GP world, it's uh, it's huge and it's varied, and it varies from region to region. It varies from LP type to LP type. But my initial interaction day to day was was with institutional LPs, and similar to ourselves at BPC. They are very, very rational actors. Uh, not to say others aren't rational actors, but 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 they very much operate to to a process. They very much open operate to a long term strategic uh, approach, and that means uh, and they have clear, relatively clear criteria. But as always, they they can't work with everybody, and so they have to they have to introduce their own filters, and that's where you see a lot of variability. Some firms, some you know, some government investors will. 
uh, tend to entertain everybody. They will, you know, it's part of their mandate. They should talk to everyone. They should give them a fair, a fair shot. Other private institutional LPs, they, they might use the, the classic VC filter. Can you get through to a senior person? Um, that's your job to do that. Um, they make it deliberately difficult. Others put, put their representatives out in market and, and they're very easy to contact. So institutional, institutional world, everyone has a different approach, but the consistency tends to be uh, a framework in the way they deploy capital, a gated approach in the way that they filter the deal flow pipeline, and some kind of reference to a, to a, a broader strategy in which they triangulate to their opportunities of interest. Family offices then are a, you know, a really important element in the ecosystem, but I think that they uh, also bar, you know, have elements of the institutional approach, but they, they you know, can be heavily driven by the principal um, or, the, or the family involved and their areas of interest. And that's great in a sense, because that gives you a different angle with which to approach an LP. Um, commonalities in areas of focus, uh, focus on sustainability, focus on interests in life sciences and healthcare. Um, you know, th- there are common topics of, uh, of interest potentially. And if you're lucky enough to speak to one of the family members, great, you can quickly, uh, m- sometimes much more quickly get through to a decision. Um, you know, and, and, that's, and that's very, very helpful. So I think they, they play an incredibly important role in the, in the ecosystem, typically smaller checks but my God, are those checks useful for a VC? And, and then, you know, the even more varied, varied world of, of high net worths um, who, um, you know, pop up everywhere, are part angels, you know, occasionally will think about taking an LP stake. And they bring something to the table as well for any VC. Uh, they bring connectivity in the market. You know, they bring really sensible advice on any of the LPACs I've ever been on with high net worths. They, they, they tend to be clear-minded individuals who have a, have a very current view on the market. So generally, you've always had very good experiences there. And so in terms of VCs communicating to all of that, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, how long is a piece of string? It's, it's about really um, thinking hard about your strategy and thinking hard, even though, you know, capital is scarce, about what kind of LPs do you want to work with? Um, because it's going to be a long, long-term relationship. And, uh, you know, some are more rational actors than others. Some are easier to deal with than others. And you want somebody that's going to be value-add to your strategy. So in a perfect world, you'd have, you know, maybe a, a strong institutional cornerstone. You'd have a number of family office checks that are sizable and that they are also going to be patient investors with you. Uh, and then you, you, you really see what, what the rest of the mix-up looks like and that may vary from fund to fund, and you've got to be open to that, and you've got to be constantly fundraising, as all VCs are. Your uh, remark about the value of high net worths on an LPAC is it's probably the first time I hear it, <laughs> curiously enough. Um, I've had a good experience. May, may, maybe <laughs> others haven't. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I guess it's, it's, as you said, it's such a varied uh, part of our ecosystem, let's put it like that, that you can have everything, right? It's like working with any angel. That's a, that's a very cool insight. Tej, let's, let's, let's move on to the next part of our conversation here, which is, would you share us a pivotal moment in your life and how has it shaped you today as an investor? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it'll be a fairly boring answer and a bit repetitive, <laughs> but, but really, uh, I think in terms of coming to where I am now as an LP and a life sciences focused LP, it was, I'd had that long and varied career, which, which I described. And, 
I then came to the to the British Business Bank and began my career as an LP. And they were great and recognized something in me that that, that variety might potentially create a, a good LP. And so I had fantastic mentors there, people like Ian Connerty, the, uh, the, the new deputy CIO, uh, Catherine Lewis-Latore, the CEO, and uh, Christine Hockley, who's uh, the MD there. And they were great at, at sort of nurturing me and supporting my, my, my intellectual interests. I think they quickly recognized somebody who has a tendency to follow their intellectual nose. And the life sciences connection quick, quickly came through. And through that, I, you know, I, I, I met uh, my first life sciences fund manager, which was uh, the Dementia Discovery Fund. Uh, walked into a room, I, I have to confess, thinking, oh, is this, is this really going to be a commercial strategy? Uh, had had Kate Bingham of SV Health uh, sitting across the table from me and uh, came out of it going, uh, you know, I, I really like these guys. I really like the strategy. And so something was in that and it, and, and it rolled on from there. And then through that sort of exposure to the life sciences sector, as, as I hope, a, a sort of a nerd and a technologist, the slow realization that, you know, where biomedical science is going um, is incredibly exciting. And, uh, and the rate of technological innovation that's happening there is, is simply stunning, both in traditional biotech and, and other areas like tech bio. And, and, that, and that really led me to where I am today, which is, you know, a uh, hopefully uh, knowledgeable LP with, with, with domain expertise in the sector and, and effectively a specialist LP who has decided that that, that is the rest of my career. Um, so, so eventually found a good home uh, for my, for my skill set, uh, but, it, but it took some time. Tej, could I ask you, because... On, on the one hand, life sciences is a space where a lot of uh, institutional investors, especially private ones, say, well, we don't touch that. <laughs> Specifically yep. what you say you're interested about, which is the clinical side, right? And, and also uh, medtech. And I think there's part, part of it is also there is some, some serendipity in, in being an institutional like BIF or, or BBC and others that allows you to have exposure to that. But I'd love to ask you as someone that was not a life sciences slash healthcare slash drug dev, whatever, expert, and having that first exposure, how has the journey been into becoming a specialist? Because that's something that you don't see many people do. And you, I actually think there's a, a bit of um, almost a bad rep in some, yes. <laughs> to yes. some extent, both on GP and LP world. So I'd love to just kind of get into your brain there of how that journey was. Well, maybe if I address your your first point, which is um, sort of the, the the binary aspects of the sector and, and that perception, you you hear that comment a lot, and my response to that is always, "Is it?" Uh, you know, and I think again, when I first started coming to this journey at, uh, at the British Business Bank, we we used to look at data from the EIF. Every, every, you know, EIF would put out the ugly duck presentation. And, and it kept on popping up, you know, these, these several charts that would say the top three out of the top five funds in our portfolio are life sciences. The, um, I may be misquoting them, but, uh, you know, the DPI on the, on the life sciences side is, is much higher um, or, is, or is somewhat higher point, than point on the tech side. Good returns and counter-cyclical. <laughs> Whatever those good, numbers Good returns were. <laughs> and counter-cyclical. And, and we were sort of scratching our heads, sort of, you know, how, how can this be? And, and, and the point is, when we, when we came to it as an LP, over time, what I realized was that on the aggregate, it is not necessarily 
as binary as it might have first appear if you were trying to invest it directly as a high net worth or a family office in, in, in an individual biotech. Or it, it is far less binary than you might think. And, and why is that? So I think the first reason is I came to realize that the life, you know, venture on the tech side can be very, very variable. And the entry access point can be a mix of things. It might be a technology background. It might be personal wealth um, that, that has allowed you to enter this world of VC. And so you end, you end up with a lot of different types of models. The same is true on the, on the life sciences side, but the one consistency you have is it is just simply an intellectually tough place um, to enter. And, and uh, not to say that's not true on the, on the tech side as well, but on the life sciences side, the, the, the people that we would encounter um, were extraordinary within, within the VC community. That, you know, someone might have a PhD in molecular biology, uh, will have gone on and uh, worked in research, will have gone to pharma, may then have gone into the city and you know, spent a time working at uh, an investment bank. And we kept on seeing these profiles of people. And that was then reflected very often in the strategies. And what we would see firm to firm, while, while the approach would change firm to firm in life sciences, what we saw was this very intelligent, very risk-balanced way of handling biotech risk. Um, and strategies that might have an early stage, more risky component, mixed with a later stage, more um, easily predictable um, uh, environment, mixed with other types of strategies like, you know, sort of quasi-structured finance where assets are taken off farmers' balance sheets and structured within, within SPVs. And so an incredibly structured approach um, to VC. And all of this in the backdrop was helped with things like the regulatory environment, where because you effectively have clinical milestones, while yes, they are, they are binary outcomes um, in theory, what you have then is it structures the way that VCs deploy capital into them. Milestone-based investing, heavy reserves, uh, an ability to cut the experiment short if it's not working out, if they're an astute enough investor. So on that binary point, I, I, beg, to, I beg to differ. Um, it's true, but it's not, always, not entirely true. And so what we found, and, and this is really the, the thesis of PRISM, is that you have a sub-asset class within venture that is, um, is highly performing, uh, has a great deal of consistency, and is technologically incredibly exciting. Before taking us on to the next part of this, I, I do want to ask you to tell us a bit about so obviously, with the father as a surgeon, there's a personal affinity for a space here, but you haven't spoken too much about the opportunity that we're looking at and why you think that now is an especially good time to be investing in this space. So I'd love to ask you to to just tell us a bit more about that before we get 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 on with everything, because I think it's it's worthwhile setting the stage for that also, because we have many that listen to an episode like this with that interest saying uh, what's actually going on? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it, and, it, and it's, it comes down to, you know, what got me excited about this space, you know, five, six years ago. And I, I you know, some people have referred to it as the, as the golden age of biotechnology. Um, and, I, and I genuinely feel that and believe that. I, I think we are at an extraordinary moment where on the biomedical research side, there are, uh, a consistent flow of fundamental breakthroughs 
that have created an acceleration of modalities and technological innovation such that we are no longer in a world of small molecule medicine and biologics um, and, and antibodies. Now, now we have added to that within the last 15 years, cell and gene therapy is a key area of focus, protein degradation, uh, as well as many, many others. So that's on the biomedical side, incredibly exciting. You know, sciences, the scientific researchers are only getting better and better uh, within academia at producing those breakthroughs. But then combined with that, um, life sciences and healthcare as a fundamentally um, useful and appropriate use case for technologies like data analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning in particular. And you look at breakthroughs at teams like uh, DeepMind, Isomorphic Labs, you know, really, it, really exciting developments and, and use, uses of artificial intelligence and machine learning to drive and give a, a, an exciting new tool to my biomedical research. And it's, you know, the volumes of genomic data that are being produced now uh, as, as the cost of sequencing falls is, is unparalleled. I think I saw a stat a couple of years ago that compared it to being in a few years time similar to the, the volume of data being produced by YouTube, Facebook and Google put together. Uh, I don't know if that's quite true, but it, it, it's a lot. And that then is driving this, this move towards the potential for precision medicine, which is really this, this, this loop where you, you effectively, you know, can afford to, to sequence my genomic profile. Um, you can perform deep data analytics on that. You, can, you have predictive power within computational infrastructure that allows you to say it's possible Tej might or might not develop certain diseases. You have the monitoring capability to be able to monitor me day to day. You have the diagnostic capability to say, you know, are, are we seeing signs that this might be happening in him? And then you have the, the you know, no longer symptomatic treatment of that potential disease, but you have the, you know, the curative potential of things like, you know, gene therapies. Uh, and, you know, we, we see that we saw the announcement of uh, the approval in the US and the UK of, uh, of, of, a, of a therapy for sickle cell disease affecting a huge patient population um, and, and potentially curative. Plenty of issues around cost and the ethics around that, but, um, but, but an amazing technology that will affect uh, millions of patients' lives. So for all those reasons, uh, again, a very long-winded answer, but uh, my apologies. But this podcast is dedicated to long-winded. <laughs> good, good, good. So I'm glad. <laughs> a new tagline. Yeah, and, and I'm afraid I can go, I, I can go on about it forever. But but for all those reasons, it, it fundamentally excites me as a sector. Um, and uh, combine that with you know some of the comments I made about VCs, the VCs' battle-hardened approach within the space. You know, not to get caught up in the hype, not to get caught up in the excitement but to, 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 to expertly go into the, that technology equation and extract commercial value, I, I think it's a super exciting space. And I would encourage you know, other LPs to take a look at it. A hundred percent. So now let's get into our take a stand section. Take a stand. 
So, Tesh, I would love to ask you to comment on this quote by our very dear friend Simon Lohman from Cavalry. And the quote is, Europe will not sleep through the next technology wave. And what I mean with that is actually the AI platform shift that we have at the moment. So I, I love the quote. Um, uh, I, th I think it's particularly astute and it, and it sort of captures the state of play of wh where we are in, in, in European AI. But also uh, beyond the research side, the capital raising ecosystem. So I, I was lucky enough um, uh, to, to work as an LP with, with groups like uh, IQ Capital. And that really, you know, helped me plug into the, the ecosystem in Europe. And th there is a, a depth and expertise of deep tech um, investing uh, that, that I think is very special uh, in, in Europe. In a sense, that, that ecosystem have come through an environment where there wasn't just simply a wall of capital, you know, pointed in this direction a few years ago. So those, uh, th those VCs and those companies have come through with a really lean approach um, to, to developing their technologies. In my own field, I mean, it's not the first time that, that AI has been has promised a sort of new dawn in, in, in medicine and innovation in, uh, in healthcare. Uh, we've seen this before, but I, I think that we, we have some really interesting combination of factors that are happening, algorithmic advances, improved computational infrastructure, uh, as I mentioned, the, you know, the explosion in data, uh, in genomic data, electronic health records, and, and even, you know, the increased digitization of, of research and lab work um, across pharma, biotech, academic organizations. So, so the, all of that is coming into play. I, I've seen it through my own studies to a limited extent. But, but in particular, some of the, the filtered information we, we get from the VC community really excites me about what, what is happening within uh, European AI. What are you seeing? You put it beautifully when you said the, <laughs> the, filtered, the filtered level of information <laughs> that gets to you, because that's exactly how David and I put it as well, uh, just in a more... Uh, more uh, much more eloquent than we would what ever did you call it? we would yeah, ever much say more eloquent you're exactly right that's exactly it and that's why i want to ask you this question because for me i am very much seeing the, this opportunity right but i am also seeing definitely a sector that i i have found to be crap at doing anything that comes with data and adaptability and moving quickly and so on so we know how to use a new cancer treatment and get that into the system. But we've been really, really bad, I think, that's my take at least, in, in, in the health sector to incorporate this type of technology. So what are you seeing in that filter in the end? What are the things that, that the v, you're seeing VCs saying across the board, this is incredibly exciting, but we're not doing deals in this space because we just don't see adaptation being ready or or adoption being ready well, tell us what what's your thought there if i got your question right andres i mean so I, I think if it's in terms of take up by healthcare systems of um of, of big data data analytical and deep learning technologies i think healthcare systems in europe um, present a huge opportunity i mean 
universal healthcare systems, centralized decision-making to an extent, um, all, all sounds great. And, and there's an opportunity for tech companies to work with them, you know, have cent central repositories of data and, and really be able to feed that into foundation models and others um, to improve those algorithms quickly. Um, sounds great in theory, but uh, at, at the same time, you look at in the UK, at groups like uh, the NHS, uh, fantastic institution, but has had a reputation in the past past for, for not always being um, the easiest to work with, with um, fragmented customer bases uh, in, in different regions. I, I think the NHS has done a great job in, in improving that situation with things like NHSX and, and, and other initiatives and has been able to work with technology providers to, to really take advantage of, uh, of what's available. And, you know, I was talking to an LP a couple of days ago and uh, who's internationally based and, and, and has spent some time in the UK now. And he was like lauding the, the you know, the, the NHS, how he was getting a text message um, about his appointment and how he went in and had a, had, a, had, a, had a procedure that was, you know, using using the latest medical devices. And uh, so, you know, a real cheerleader. So I, I think it, 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 these are big, slow-moving institutions within Europe, particularly on the healthcare side, but uh, fundamentally, uh, they offer really interesting opportunities for the developers of, of deep technologies because of that, that, that centralization of data and really the, oppor the opportunity to deploy at scale, I would say, as long as you can get through those, those front-end barriers. And for that reason, you are seeing your VCs deploying into startups that are very much at the forefront of using, as an example, LLMs in a more general practitioner type uh, uh, setting, uh, me meaning that's the end goal of that type of business? Or, or do VCs in general in this space see that type of business as there's no reason? <laughs> We're not there yet. I think it's a real mixed bag. Um, it's difficult to give a generalized answer. I, on, on the one hand, talking to one, you know, senior VC in the US, you know, his answer was, well, look, the algorithms are ubiquitous. And effectively, what we will see is, you know, while we've got this current wave, what we'll see are, are a bunch of off the shelf, um, deep, you know, deep learning technologies, AI platforms, and then they will have highly, highly specialized implementations. And that's where the value equation will be will be discovered for, for, for firms that, that survive over the longer term. So that's at one end of the spectrum. At the other end, specialist deep tech VCs that, that, that we've, we work with and have spoken to in, in Europe are, as I said, cautiously bullish on, on the potential in the space that, um, that those use cases are being built around individual companies that they're investing into, um, that those, those companies have re while they are experts within the individual implementation um, of, of their deep learning technology, they fundamentally, uh, as a team and a management team, have such deep networks within the business area that they, they know what will work and what won't work. They have, a, they have a really strong sense of what the customer will buy and how to roll out across Europe and do land and expand type strategies. So it's it's a mixed bag. I, I think no, no one has the crystal ball perfectly on it. I, I think deep deep learning investment has been a really interesting sector where it, it's differentiated in that 
very often, um, you know, the levels of capital to get a company to a meaningful stage can be significantly less versus driving growth, um, as we've seen over the last decade or so in areas like enterprise SaaS. So it's a different skill set, highly specialized. And I think that's my that's my view on it. It's a kind of wait wait and see. We we continue to to listen with an open mind to what our VCs tell us. It varies a lot from sector to sector, and um, the, the story that there is no fixed playbook yet. Tej, just on your point of deep tech, and and maybe I want to echo your shout out to IQ Capital. We love the guys as well. But deep tech has been been soaring. With I think I wrote this earlier. I think it was yesterday that I wrote. There's been, since 2018, there's been a 500% plus increase in exits and Europe is really uh, punching above its weights. It's Absolutely. really exciting. Absolutely. But I want to ask you, because I love I, I love the space. I'm not a specialist. I have some exposure. I love the space. Life sciences, generally speaking. I'm, I'm very much a big fan of AI as both a user and as an investor. And uh, actually, in our underlying portfolio, we have a company that probably one of the companies that excites me the most, which is the overlap of like drug discovery and AI, which I think is really cool. Uh, so I'd love to ask you about AI specifically. And the big topic for anyone who's in Europe is EU's AI Act. So I'd love to ask you, uh, any thoughts? Uh, do you see that impacting the, the, the crossover between life sciences and AI? Do you have anything you, you can share yet? Or are you still kind of digesting it as most of us are? I think we're very similar to you. We're, we're, we're sort of ruminating on that and digesting it. But I, I think, you know, as I said before, within life sciences and healthcare, it's a brilliant use case for deep learning technologies. Um, the, the complexity, the, the, the volumes of data you get out of a single cell in terms of uh, molecular interactions out of cells in the body, trillions of cells interacting. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, perfect, it's a perfect, perfect use case. And in terms of approaches like spatial biology and molecular biology, uh, the omics revolution, we're we're seeing. I think the the practical answer to what you to what you asked is the implementations that we get really excited about are within individual companies, and even what we're seeing within pharma, where it tends not to be just a deep learning medical company. It tends to be a, a, a biotech or a, or a medical devices company trying to solve a problem. And it's a combination of a wet lab and a dry lab within a single company where bioinformatics and deep learning technologies are being used to identify uh, and optimize for uh, the lead asset. And it's only when that is when that exercise is done do the wet lab then say, okay, let's start to experiment. And so it's these very symbiotic combinations of of approaches to solve a fundamental problem um, where we see the most practical use cases that we can see generating value in the long term rather than being a pure AI play, which certainly within life sciences has been a a, a difficult path. And it's that uh, there are many there are many stories about uh, high, high profile use cases where that, that has not gone as well as expected. So we get really excited about those individual biotechs where teams of data analysts and deep tech specialists working alongside uh, biomedical researchers are producing, enhancing really the existing the existing pipelines. 
So Tej, before we started recording, I promised this wouldn't take more than an hour. That is now not going to happen because we got a bit excited. Oh. <laughs> just a heads I, up. I, 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 I tend to go on, so, so, so do no, feel free. It's not your stop. fault. It's our fault. No, but but I think it's it's the perfect it's the perfect moment for us to go into Prism a bit more in detail, and starting off with what's the firm's worldview? Like, why why do you exist? Right, and I think that's a great way a great way to start things off. So we, we are a specialist life sciences healthcare investor and it done at an institutional level. Um, and what are the reasons for that? We are fundamentally long on the, um, on the technological potential uh, within the life sciences space for all the reasons that I've talked through. We believe that the massive demographic tailwinds in terms of, and, and headwinds for that matter, in terms of aging populations, in terms of rises in disease, disease large disease areas, both chronic and specialist, are, are creating a, a demand pool um, that will drive this sector to be a fundamental part of institutional portfolios uh, as we go forward. There is absolutely uh, tremendous uh, government backing um, for a push into this area, particularly within the UK, where they see the potential of strengths of the UK um, in this sector and are, and are driving um, both regulatory change and, and capital through things like the Mansion House Compact here in the UK. Uh, so, so all of that is great to see. And, and for that reason, we fundamentally feel like we are uh, the right firm with the right thesis at the right time uh, to really capture all of that for the next 10, 20 years. At the end of the day, we we come at it not just with a sort of giddy enthusiasm, but we are a, a dry, boring institutional in, in investor. And as I, as I mentioned before, what we see within the venture asset class is, is really uh, an interesting financial commercial product with, within life sciences and healthcare venture, where those, those strategies on the aggregate at a fund-to-fund -fund institutional level um, have the potential to produce really interesting portfolios. And frankly, we're, we're following the work of people like the EIF and the BPC and BPC in that regard. Why life sciences healthcare focused? Why not a deep tech focused or why not um, IP heavy or IP focused? Because that would, as an example, could encompass then automatically climate, which is arguably also going to save a shit ton of lives, <laughs> right? So why, why, why so narrow at the same time? I don't think it's narrow, but it's more narrow than deep tech, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, so, so two answers. I, I would say, firstly, I don't think it's narrow. I, I think it's a vast, a vast area that, that impacts, you know, everyone's lives, um, as, does, as does the broader tech uh, world, for sure. But, but life sciences and healthcare will touch each and everyone's lives at different, at different points in our lives. And, and that will only increase as a trend, as I, as I said. So I, I think it's a vast area, both technologically, both in terms of the, uh, the macro view of it and the potential impact on society. And then secondly, why not deep tech? Well, I think the answer is we, we are hugely interested in a team um, within deep, deep learning technologies. And we deliberately describe ourselves as a firm that is interested passionate about two key pillars. One is traditional biopharma and, and the second is tech bio. And so deliberately within our strategy, we are talking to new and existing managers that, that are tackling this frontier space. Uh, and that itself is a, you know, is a is such a frontier space that is incredibly appropriate to venture 
that um, as an investor in innovation, that we are we are very excited as as a team about that. So so we are involved in deep learning technologies, but but with that with that life sciences lens, where we feel we have some domain expertise and really bring something to the table. And um, you know, it, it may be the case that we do end up working with a generalist deep tech VC. Uh, that that's entirely possible and within scope for us. That was actually exactly what I would wanted to ask you about because tech bio is often done by firms that also do other things. So tech bio and then 20% that and 30% that, um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that as, as an LP in your, in your strategy? As I said, I think we are open-minded to the the strategies that uh, are playing out. We're also a co-investor. So, so where we see a strategy that maybe is 60% deep life sciences, 40%, deep tech or 50-50, and we think the fundamental commercial strategy of the fund has been working, um, well, A, we're, we're interested in deploying dollars in that, but B, we know that then there's a significant probability that that, that firm may identify the outstanding tech bio company um, of the next five, six years. And so that therefore it is appropriate for our portfolio. From a portfolio construction perspective, Tej, how do you think about hardware? Is that something that you want limited exposure to? You're quite bullish on. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll give the cliche quote: hard, "Hardware is hard," um, <laughs> and, and, and no less so than in uh, than in life sciences and healthcare. I think it, it is a tricky area. Um, if I if I focus on medical devices, yep. what we saw over the last five six years was a number of VCs uh, pulling back from that space both because of the capital intensity of some of those projects, but also um, a very tricky regulatory environment, um, Europe, Europe versus the US. It is a very tricky area, but fundamentally, it also has the ability to impact patients' lives massively. And so we feel comfortable, I think, if I speak for our firm, we, we feel comfortable going into it with, with battle-hardened VCs who have it as a component of their strategy would we go into a 100% medical device focused uh, VC? I'd never say no, but I think that is a tough play um, for the reasons I mentioned. Would you ever consider, um, you know, and now I'm bringing it to an LP portfolio level of, you know, you might have five bets that have 20% allocated to hardware, whatever those numbers are, and then kind of, would you would you ever consider like, hmm, maybe I'm a bit overexposed now from a whole portfolio perspective? Would Would that be something in your mind? We, we do think in that way. I mean, we do, as a fund of fund investor, we, we fundamentally are looking for the best fund managers to work with. That naturally then starts to produce a shape of the underlying portfolio in terms of the sectors that those investors uh, are invested in. But at the same time, we take a framework approach. And so what we do is at the outset of a fund, we, we map out where we think from, a, from our own technology view of the world and from our own commercial view, where, where we want the capital in this portfolio to end up uh, at a high level. It doesn't mean we're going to achieve exactly that. But what we then try to do is monitor on an ongoing basis how that that spread between biopharma, medical devices, diagnostics is is starting to build up and how it's mapping to that, that original intention. And it's okay if it's not a perfect match. But we we definitely do take that kind of framework strategy approach 
for any GP listening in that is either doing stuff in biotech, tech, bio, deep tech, could you give us a quick rundown of what are you looking for in terms of mins and max? And that goes for fund vintage, that goes for fund size, that goes for stage, that goes for G. Just give us a rundown as, as, as complete as you can. Sure. So I, I don't, hopefully we don't have too many mins and maxes, but um, we, we keep things pretty flexible. We, we, as a port, in terms of our portfolio construction, we have a core focus on established managers, and that, and that means really at a fund three plus. However, we have a specific allocation for emerging managers, so around a 20% or so allocation. It's fairly flexible. And, and the reason we do that is because emerging managers is a very specific skill set. Uh, they are not easy to deal with. Um, there's lots of basics that you have to go through and really understand how, have they figured that out. But it is an incredibly useful way within venture specifically to access frontier technologies and deal with smaller, nimble teams. So we very much have that mindset. Set mindset is part of my DNA, having come, having started my career in the emerging manager program at British Business Bank. Then, in terms of other mins maxes, I mean, our check size range, you know, is 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 a, is a reasonable spread. At the top end, we might do a ten million euro deployment in, into earlier stage managers. We might we might look at two and a half million uh, at that type of level. In terms of sectoral focus of a VC that we're speaking to, I would say probably if there's a sort of fifty percent life sciences healthcare focus. Uh, that's a good rule of thumb for us uh, as as a minimum. But as I said, e- even then, we we encounter very specific, interesting use cases where we think you know the potential for identifying outstanding companies, for example, in deep learning, is possible, and, and we we keep that flexible. Geographically, we are broadly split between the U.S., Europe, and uh, and and the U.K. So. Again, we have we have plenty of scope there. Although we look at it both at the level of the VC manager, but also how they've deployed in the past at an underlying portfolio company level. And as I said, we we take a framework approach in terms of technologies. Um, we don't have fixed percentages that we we will only deploy into this much. You know, biopharma. Could you share with us what the portfolio model of someone like you looks like? Uh, how much is allocated to to, to funds, how much to direct, how much uh, to to US, how much to Europe, how much to UK, how much to early stage, how much to growth. And if you can also expand a bit when you state those percentages, also why? Um, what's your reflection on that? And then Dave and I will jump in with questions along the way. So our portfolio construction is, is fairly straightforward. We are a pure life sciences healthcare investor um, at, at the top end. We have an 80-20 established versus emerging manager approach, as I said, broadly geographically, 50-50 US versus the UK and Europe. Check sizes ranging from two and a half to 10 million into 15 to 20 fund investments. So really a core fund of fund approach. Why 15 to 20? Because that's the one thing that you might be you know what? Uh, there's a, there's some decisioning there, right? For sure. I mean, so for us, it was it was really a, a long internal conversation, a fair amount of um, statistical work, uh, and what we triangulated to, and and also 
the lens of what's available in the market. How many funds do we think are in our target universe? How, how often are they going to be coming to market within particular vintages? And what we triangulated to was, was that kind of number, um, specifically because we felt it offered the right level of um, diversification uh, within our portfolio. Um, there's, uh, there's excellent work by, uh, I think it's um, Thomas Mayers or Mayanet, um, the guys from the EIF um, who've done some research and some reading and some analysis of this, this point. And I think that, you know, some of the statistical work we did pointed to that being the right level of diversification without being over-diversified, but also fundamentally for us within our investment period being operationally implementable with, with, with a, a team like ours. So putting all those factors together, we think, practically speaking, each year, we will have a universe of really interesting managers to select from, where, you know, choosing five or six is and, and, and getting those deals across the line is, is fundamentally doable within a, a three year investment period. You didn't state the size of the fund, but you did state that it is a fund. So it was incepted by a family. That family has then decided to build a fund instead of invest out of a balance sheet. Could you share with us a bit about that decision process as well and, and why that, that was perceived by the family to be the right thing? So we are we are backed by a German family office. Um, they are highly entrepreneurial. Um, they they have built a number of businesses. And when uh, they began that conversation with me, it, it was always one about building an institution. This was not going to be an internal family office balance sheet strategy, um, and that I think reflects their mindset as business builders. And and there are simply well established. Uh, structural um, approaches that within a GPLP structure that that work well, and in terms of then have growing a series of funds under a long term institution and growing that institution over time, that that's where they felt it was the maximum opportunity to exploit the space and to 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 really grow Prism Ventures into a world beating allocator. Um, that is that is seen by other institutions as the specialist in the space. So it was a it was an early conversation. It was very clear on both sides. That's that's what we wanted. Before we go on to our shout out section, if you could enlighten us a bit on on what you look for in the managers, I think that's that's worthwhile uh, uh, diving into. Yes, and and stop me if I if I go on because that that's a <laughs> that's my day to day job. So. Uh, I, look, at the high level, uh, like, like most other LPs, we, we, we break it down very simply. Um, at any VC we look at, uh, or any opportunity, it's team, track record, investment strategy, um, how are they doing in their fundraising, and uh, what, what are the terms on offer, which sounds simple enough. There's a lot that then gets unpacked underneath each of those categories. So on, on something like team, you know, do we fundamentally like this team? Do they have a track record of, of really investing together um, that's demonstrable? If we really lift up the hood on data sheets and individual track records, um, you know, who's doing the work in this team? Is it concentrated in a couple of partners? Is it actually two principals doing all the work? You know, what, what, what really is the dynamic in this team? 
And we like to see a machine that works and that's been tested. Tricky in the case of an emerging manager, but whatever evidence you can gather in that regard is is helpful and it's up to you whether you want to take that bet or not. But we've, we're open to different models. We're, we're open to very different looking teams, but we like to see a machine that works um, for whatever reason. We just want to understand how that is working. Um, has it worked in the past? Will it work in the future? Are there signs of trouble? If we do referencing in the team, in the market, one-on-one interviews, are we seeing any patterns here? Um, is it too dependent on one partner? So things like that um, are, are some of the elements we, we try to look at. You know, is there a succession planning uh, approach here? What is, the, what is the firm's approach to diversity, for example, in, in, a, in, in a broad uh, interpretation of that term? Is it, a, is it a sort of aggressive up or out culture? Um, is, it, is it a very, very level playing field where everyone's in the investment committee together? We, we, want, to under, we want to understand all of that. Is it an aggressive up or out mm. culture? What's your take on that? I've seen it work. I mean, I, I think that um, for some firms that is entirely suitable. That's part of their DNA. It's part of what has made their success. And, there, and it is absolutely compatible with an approach that focuses on bringing in the best people um, and, and progressing the best performers. That can lead to a, a team that is highly diverse in terms of gender, age, ethnicity, all those traditional measures. But, but fundamentally, when you sit down in front of them, has a, has a team that has incredible diversity of thought. And I think that, so, so as I said, we are open to all models as long as it works and an up or out culture for certain firms it, it is, is part of their DNA. It, it doesn't work for other teams who are much more, um, I would say, le- less aggressive and, and where it suits their strategy are all about building a family, keeping that family together long-term, keeping that, uh, that intellectual knowledge and, and, and that is absolutely the case for certain VC firms. But, but for firms, and very often they've tended in the past to be firms that are maybe have a little bit more investment banking, maybe a little bit more uh, of that culture in their background. But it, it's perfectly valid. And, and, if, and if that's their, their way of turning capital um, and getting deals across the line and identifying best of breed opportunities, we're, we're open to that. As, as as long as there are you know safety limits, it, yeah, it yeah. shouldn't be shouldn't <laughs> be too aggressive or um, or, or too unfairly up or out for sure. But uh, yeah, yeah, and there are plenty of and there are plenty of examples. I have one final topic I love love to surface, Tej. Uh, succession, and I know you have some thoughts around this because we did brainstorm a bit before before the, the conversation. And as you have a focus on more established. Managers, it's even more relevant, I guess. Especially, you know, and when I think of some, I won't name anyone, of course. But when I think of some of of, of the funds that we know that are like on fund four, fund five, we're, we're definitely seeing that come into play. New generations of partners and so on. So I'd love to to ask you to share a bit. I'm not sure how to phrase it, but when you think of succession, what are the core things that come to mind? And any any tips? that you could share for, for uh, I like to call them emerging blue chip managers that are going into becoming established? Sure, of course. Well, I think the easiest way to describe it is, you know, when I come and sit in front of a VC and start to lift up the hood in terms of diligence, what, what looks 
fundamentally healthy to me as a firm. Um, and I think that is um, at the top end, really good leadership at the partner level, people who have built firms before either individual corporates or have that background of, of building. And they are looking to build their firm and they have a long-term mindset that potentially goes beyond their own tenure uh, because they, they're aware of the, the importance of not just their own individual um, situation, but the impact that their firm is having. And that they you know, may have built the, built, built the firm as a, as a two-partner team. They took all the risk. You know, they started in that room together. But they've, where appropriate, handed across the reins to others um, because that is operationally optimal, but also is good for the long-term health of the firm. So what we'd like to see are firms that have a good spread of responsibility at the top end, um, that partners work very closely with the, uh, the, the next levels, the principals and associates and analysts, that they've all had a strong involvement in bringing in and recruiting those people. And so there's strong buy-in across the firm as to why they like that, 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 that deep bench that they've created. And that they have a rational approach and that, the, and that the, the junior bench feel that, that they fundamentally feel there is a rational approach to, to, prog to progression. And that this isn't just a pick your favorites type situation, that it's partly based on you know, their adoption of firm culture. It's partly based on um, their outstanding performance in terms of deal sourcing, deal selection, um, deal analysis and, and deal execution. And that the economics, in a sense, also reflect that, um, so that, uh, that there is a good broad spread of economics across the team. The broader, the better, and, and the healthiest firms we have seen genuinely do that. And that's not an easy decision to make when a point when a firm reaches a certain size. There are grumblings. You know, it, it's a hard exercise for a firm to sit down and say, "Okay, look, let, let's take a look at ourselves." And, and, and really think about the point we've got to um, and, and do this not just because there's one loud voice uh, in, in the room, but do this because we as a firm, you know, want to have a healthy progression. And, uh, yeah, I think th those are fundamentally the, you know, some, some of the things that we like to see. And, and, and a, the overall umbrella for that is team culture, a team that are happy, they get on with each other, uh, they love the culture, they, they, you know, they, they really, there aren't grumblings coming out when we do one-on-one -on -one interviews with, uh, with, with team members. There's, there's, there's a general sense of enthusiasm. It doesn't mean you need to fake that. You know, we're pretty good at picking up on that stuff. But, um, but, but that it's a fundamentally happy team um, that like each other and like working with each other and are aligned to the long-term mission of what the firm's trying to do. So, Tesh, we need to get on because we have more to cover and I think we're on our... 60-minute mark. <laughs> um, fun editing job approach, and approaches you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're going to put everything out, Tej. We, uh, we, don't, we don't cut things short here. Um, but I want to ask you, because in our preparation for this, you gave us a long set of questions that you look at when you're evaluating teams. Yes. First, can we put that publicly together with the episode <laughs> why not go ahead go for it we're we're very open about the questions we ask and i and i and as i said i 
that is a small subset of, of where we go with yeah. things, but why not? But beautiful. I ask you, I ask you, of course, because I think that the, there's not that many places where you have good repositories, repositories of LP information, right? So, so, so we always try and, and leverage it when we have the opportunity. So, so everyone listening in, if you if you want to hear, and this is at least 30, probably 40 questions that uh, Tesh and his team goes through when they look at, uh, at GPs. So, so go on to eu.vc and you'll find it there. And then before we go on to the next segment, I just want to ask you, is there anything here that you feel that you would have loved that we made it just to talk about at least briefly before we go on to, uh, to, to give your shout out? The key thing I would pick out of that long list of questions for us as, a, as an institutional LP is, is very often portfolio construction. Um, it, it's, it's a dry topic. It, it involves looking at spreadsheets and working, working through fund models, but also, you know, but it is absolutely incredibly important. And it comes back time and time again that a firm might have incredibly dynamic personalities and individuals, uh, an incredible technology thesis. But if fundamentally the basic mechanical plan for turning a certain amount of capital into a larger amount of capital doesn't work on paper, hasn't been proven out in the track record, that will come back to bite again and again and again. When you see that fail, Tish, when you see that chain of beautiful, <laughs> beautiful team all the way down to having a beautiful portfolio model break, what do you see being the cause of that? And is it irreparable for the VC? Meaning one might think, well, if I'm a good cook and you've got the recipe and you think my recipe isn't good, well, why don't we just <laughs> work on it a bit together and then, 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 you know, we can still do this thing together. Well, listen, it is always a dynamic conversation with partners, um, you know, between us, us as an LP and, and the firm. And I hope as a value add LP, we, we try to keep people honest in, in, a, in a good partnership approach way and and sort of comment where we think that there's uh, things are things are going adrift so wh where it goes wrong is i think an element of strategy drift um that, that just happens organically the, the market changes perhaps firms want to go later stage we see that a lot where a firm that started as an early stage investor has been burned on the on the fundamental risk that comes with early stage investing and, and wants to move later stage um, to have more certainty over the the outcome of their fund and fundamentally you know the delivery of carry to that to them as a uh, as a team so that that starts to occur and that that might be fine and it might be appropriate to where market conditions are at but but is it their skill set um, because early stage investing is different to late stage investing I think, you know, it, it, it is clear that growth of AUM is a thing that is front and center in a lot of managers' minds, and, and rightly so. I mean, they are looking to grow their firm. They're looking to grow themselves as a, as a force in the market. But that, you know, growing from a 150 million fund to a 400 million fund to a, you know, a 700 million fund, that is a huge and fundamental change in portfolio construction. How does that work, you know? Is it going to be 15 to 20 deals um, in that portfolio? What is the initial check going to be? What's the stake you're going to take? You, is it, does, does the strategy scale at that kind of level? And, and very often the answer is no. You know, the, the tired cliche that venture do, doesn't scale does come back again and again and again, unless, unless the firm have really thought that through and have, a, 
have a really interesting strategy which they, they've used to bridge from that, that initial strategy to this, to this increase in AUM. When you're already in a fund three and, and, and they're, they're pondering fund four and they're looking to go from 150 to 300 uh, or, and they might not necessarily, but that's on their, on their mind. How do you approach that as an LPAC member and, and as an LP? How do you wish that managers work with you? So as an LPAC member, I mean, I, I focus on the fund. I'm, I, I'm an LPAC member of <laughs> fundamentally, and I try to stick to that discipline. Uh, but, but as an LP being spoken to about, about the next fund, I really want to understand, again, wh- what is the portfolio construction here? Why do you think the, the, the strategy scales to that level? Is it just going to be a, a direct scale up of initial and follow on checks? Are you going to tweak the strategy? Um, because you think there's fundamentally an opportunity to here to take um, greater ownership at the initial check? Have you tweaked your follow-on strategy and the way you're doing that um, and how you're allocating those reserves to the best opportunities versus underperforming opportunities? So d- do you have a plan that, that, that fundamentally um, works? Also, how will this growth in AUM affect the firm? Uh, it, it, it's an, it, it's, if you can do it, it's, it can be an incredible positive for the firm. Greater management fee, greater flexibility to grow the team, grow the platform, um, and become a force for good in the market. So we try to look at all those aspects, both the firm, the fund, but always our first priority as a commercial investor is, is this going to dampen down returns in what we thought was a fundamentally good strategy, or is it in some way going to enhance it and increase their ability to win the best deals? Can I ask you, because when you're of the size that you are and you're doing the size of tickets that you are, when does a fund get too big? Because fundamentally, a 150 million euro fund will have a different ability to do 5x than a 700 or a billion or more. And I always say, well, when I talk to private LPs, families that want to do and reason, well, perfectly fine, go ahead and do that. But just expect that, that you know, it's, they're probably not going to do 10x on, on that, right? And if you're a fund of fund that tries to deliver the best possible returns, there is a point where it gets tough for you with a 5 million euro ticket, as an example, uh, to get meaningful returns out of something, right? So again, it comes back to us and our portfolio construction, and um, you know, p- perhaps the, the the smaller checks into smaller funds with higher uh, multiple potential, but at the same time higher risk, you know, is entirely appropriate to our to, to the construction of our of our institutional portfolio. At the same time, we do think about we want to have a core engine that works, and that core engine is should be with established managers who have a track record of producing a, a certain level of performance reliably, we will absolutely look at, you know, are they doubling or tripling their fund size? Well, that would indicate that this is a new experiment for them. But if it's a logic, logical growth of the fund, for example, from 300 to 500, where it, it's effectively expanding capital within the same existing strategy, um, we're, we're open-minded to that. So as with all good asset managers, we want to build a balanced portfolio that, that blends deliverability with um, us fundamentally taking uh, venture risk, which is which is our strategy. Tej, now it's time for our shout-out segment. Love is in the air. Everybody 
I'd love to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor angel or LP for being awesome. And of course, do share the story behind that awesomeness. I'm afraid I'm going to be a bit repetitive. I'm going to call out Ian Connors here at British Patient Capital. He was the person that recruited me there. He taught me my trade as an LP. He was a superb mentor for me personally. And I, and I really learned a lot from him in terms of growing an investment team and how to how to uh, compose uh, an investment team in terms of the, uh, the people and the power of investing as a team where there are divergent voices and how do you actually involve those voices on a deal where somebody you know, completely hates it, um, bringing them onto the deal team, making sure that you know, they have the, the voice that is appropriate. So, Lots and lots of learnings um, from from BPC broadly, but but Ian in particular. What, one of the best things he did with me was uh, really um, kept on. Uh, I would write my initial investment papers, and Ian would be like, "Look, that, that's great, and you've definitely captured the, the you know the, the technical answers, but I, this is not the voice that I hear in our investment teams every day. You know, let let's sit down together." And let's put put aside all the materials. Let's have a let's have a talk about this deal. And we would talk about the deal. And he would get me to, get me saying what I really think. And he was he would go, "That's great, that's great, that's great. That's not in the paper." And so, in an appropriate way, he was great at bringing out that structured intuition and making sure that that isn't lost in a um, in a broader set of technical analysis. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've kept that learning. I'm, I'm using that learning and implementing it in, uh, in my own team at Prism Ventures. And, um, you know, in, in a world of sort of copy and paste and rehashing and, you know, let's get, let's get uh, the AI to, to write it. Um, yeah, the, the power of an individual and their, and their thinking is, uh, must not be lost because it is the ultimate algorithm. It is the ultimate um, you know, distillation of, of large bodies of data into an investment view. And so uh, thanks to Ian and, uh, uh, and all his learnings. So now let's go to the three biggest learnings that you've had in the last 10 years of your life. And we're going to make this a rapid fire just as our final closing segment because we are very close to the clock. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a few, and hopefully it doesn't go beyond three. But um, look, fundamentally, the biggest learnings have been over the last five, six years, the the, the accelerating breakthroughs in, in, in biomedical science and uh, the incredible new modalities uh, that are coming through and have the power to change all our lives in, in, in positive ways. As I mentioned, the, the, the power of teams um, in, in delivering projects and investment strategies. Uh, and, and the factors that, that make an outperforming team and how to manage that team uh, effectively. And uh, if, I, if I throw in the last one, maybe a bit more personal, um, really uh, on the power of things like personally meditation, sleep, exercise, um, not only in sort of keeping yourself physically and, and mentally healthy, uh, but also in terms of giving your brain downtime and allowing it to to, to process uh, complex information, uh, which is essential in our business. Um, you, you need that downtime to really let your brain stew and, 
and, and let the subconscious work. That is not something that comes easy to me. <laughs> so I'll put it like that, sleeping. <laughs> Letting the subconscious work, I don't, I don't think we really have the willpower for that yet. Maybe, maybe a final one then. Cold showers, give that a try. I, I picked that up a few years ago and uh, that, that is very good for sleep. <laughs> so now let's go into the quickfire round to wrap things up. And now, the quickfire round. Tej, what advice would you give your 10 year younger self? Trust yourself and, you know, trust yourself to keep doing what you've been doing, which is following your intellectual nose, even though that 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 produces a, a long and varied career um, it, 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 to my younger self, you know, trust that it will lead somewhere exciting. Uh, that you might not might not be obvious to you right now, and um, you know may, maybe have you heard of this LP thing? Um, you might not be aware of it, but it <laughs> might be suited to you. So give it a look. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think stamina is key. Um, you know, starting a new firm is is incredibly difficult. Uh, it, it could take up to, to two years to see whether this thing works out or not. So stamina at the personal level, financial, uh, in terms of the conviction around your thesis, and finally pursuing us pesky LPs is, is absolutely key. As we talked about before, I, I would, even though it's a tricky exercise and, and maybe somewhat theoretical, I would try to think about the 10 to 15 year plan for your firm. How, how are you building out towards that vision at the outset of your journey and how are you going to explain that to LPs who are looking for that multi-fund, multi-year, stable relationship. That's absolutely key. And maybe a final one, which is, which is you yourselves, you, you, as VCs and emerging VCs, your job is assessing and selecting investments. So, so, so really turn that lens on yourself, which I'm amazed how often I see firms don't do and, and they look to me to do that for them as the as the external party in the LP, but but really try and sit down, to have an offsite, get the whiteboard up, take an honest look at yourself as a team and a strategy and a firm, and ask yourself, does it stack up? Would you invest in your next fund? And what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? <laughs> well, we touched on it earlier. Uh, that that that. Uh, biotech is supposedly this binary asset class. I don't think that's in, uh, entirely true and that it, it is this incredibly consistent and, and, and performing uh, sub-asset class within venture. It isn't something that I, that I had known when I first came to the space as an LP. Uh, so definitely uh, was counterintuitive for me initially, uh, but no longer. I, I had thought coming from a background in private equity, you would always want to go into the big firms, get that reliable machine, take advantage of their access to deal flow. But the outsized role of, of, of emerging managers within VC is key and can never be forgotten. And, and, and I think should play a, an important role in, in LP portfolios that are looking at venture. So on that friendly note, let's close off this conversation and say thanks a million for everyone tuning in. Thanks a million for joining us, Tesh. 
We hope you enjoyed the episode and do drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc where you'll also find the diligence list or at least small small parts of it that uh, we, we, we teased just early in this episode. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values. values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.